The text that we're looking at this morning uh, is from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church today is very much like Cinderella. Uh, on the one hand, the church is something of beauty. She is the bride of Christ. Uh, Jesus loves the church. Jesus gave himself for her. Jesus gave himself for the church with a love that is so intense, so self-sacrificial, so practical, that uh, it's used in the New Testament as a model for the way in which husbands have to love their wives. The bride of Christ. She has great value. She's got a great future. <laughs> She is how God's kingdom extends throughout the world. But like Cinderella, the church suffers from underappreciation. No one wants to take her to the ball. And part of the problem is a problem of identity. Uh, what exactly is a church? How do you recognize the church? All over, uh, all over town there are churches which have got uh, steeples, which have got sign outside saying church. But uh, a steeple and a sign do not a church make. You can have all of the trappings of church without being a church. At the time of the Reformation, when the, the Church of Rome was declaring itself the, the one holy Catholic church, it was a matter of great concern that the reformers have marks of the church so that you could recognize where a true church was, as opposed to what the Confession of Faith calls a synagogue of Satan. And we're going to be looking, uh, God willing, next time at the, the uh, functions of the church. What is it that uh, a church does which makes it recognizably a true church? Uh, the proclamation, the worshipping, the discipline, the mercy that goes on in the church. And when these things are absent, the church is literally no more than a social club. Uh, it's simply a gathering for social activism, or maybe even a point of uh, superstition. And it's little wonder that people should become cynical if their experiences of church had been of that nature. The problem sometimes of identity. And then, of course, there have been, and we have to acknowledge this, the scandals which have rocked the church. These have taken place really down through the ages. But with modern methods of communication, the impact of these goes much wider. People are much more aware of some of the the wrongdoing that has become uh, endemic in some parts of the visible church. And so that has led again to people becoming cynical. Then there's that phenomenon of postmodernism, which supposedly at least shapes our way of thinking today. And I have to grant that there is a sense in which we do think 
uh, in ways which now are resistant to the idea of authority, of there being a truth out there. We're very susceptible to some of the charlatans like Dan Brown, who come along with uh, his Da Vinci Code, with the, the basic idea being that the church is about control. It's about the manipulation of people. And so we've got this expression that people use so commonly today, I don't believe in institutionalized religion. What they mean by that is that they don't like the boundaries that uh, creeds and confessions and scripture set on what we uh, hold as truth and what we believe is our pattern for living. To view the church with a mixture of disdain and suspicion. Now what's worrying, of course, is when uh, these things begin to affect the way that Christians think, leading to a detachment from the church of people who have put their trust in Christ. None of us are immune from soaking in the the way of thinking of people around us. And we live in a time of great individualism. We like to live our lives for our own personal needs and fulfillment. That's very much the way that we think. We don't think collectively as previous generations did. And so there is an idea uh, very prevalent that I go to church uh, to have my needs met. Nobody would say it as crassly as that, but people will say it. Didn't get much out of church today. And when we say things like that, we're actually betraying a mindset that church is about meeting my needs. Whereas church is about giving glory to God. And therefore, we have this uh, idea that the church is an organizer of <coughs> weekly shows. And we can come along and either get something out or not. And that, of course, is a mile away from the nature of the church. And what we're going to see this morning, especially, is the church is the assembly of God's chosen, the gathering together of the people of God. We're going to think a little bit about what the nature of the church is and of the Old Testament roots of the church and then the privilege of being in the church. What's the church about? Why is it so good to be a member of her? Might surprise you to know that the church is very much embedded in the Old Testament. People will say, when did the church begin? People will often say at Pentecost. Wrong. The church didn't begin at Pentecost. It began much earlier than that. Probably began with the promises given to Abraham. But uh, we're thinking in terms of the, the, the key moment being Sinai, when God's people are gathered before God himself. And when Peter is speaking about the church, when Peter wants to tell us what the church is like, his description is just full of Old Testament language. The word uh, in the New Testament for church, most of us know, is ecclesia, and we we get terms of ecclesiastical and so on. Now, there was a a version of the, the Old Testament that was translated from Hebrew into Greek, or the Septuagint. And quite interesting because when, they, when the people who translated the Old Testament to Greek, 
which wasn't its original language, it was Hebrew it was written in, but when they translated it from Hebrew to Greek, there was a word uh, which they translated into ecclesia, a word kapal, and that word was gathering or assembly. And they were recognizing that uh, this is the root meaning of church. When Jesus uses the word church, it's full of Old Testament significance. Church is the gathering of the people of God. And the key place where we find that idea is the book of Exodus and also Deuteronomy, where there are reflections on the church being a gathering together of people before the presence of God. Here that uh, God had taken a people to himself that he had redeemed from Egypt, and he brought them to Sinai, and he made them his people. They were constituted the people of God, and God gave them covenant law. God promised them, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and this is how you will live. And so the church began. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us of the significance of this gathering of the people before God at Sinai, and how God had gone on to lead the people from Sinai to another uh, gathering place. His mountain, not Sinai, but Zion, Jerusalem. His appointed place, where they were to gather. And so the Psalms, and we're going to sing Psalm 122 uh, at the close, and it's a psalm of gathering. But being joyful. To come together with other people who love God, to come before God, to receive his word, to respond in worship. This is what worship is about. Now we join in the worship of God's people, not in Jerusalem, but the writer to the Hebrews tells us, in the heavenly Zion. And again, we are gathering in our earthly assemblies, but we're also gathering with myriads of angels. We're gathering with the uh, host of the redeemed. And Jesus, our high priest, has opened up the way. Indeed, Jesus is present with us in our gathering. And he is singing the praises of the Father. This is the spiritual understanding of church. Church, the, the basic meaning of church is the assembly of God's people. Now, there are three implications of this. And the first is that the church is therefore inherently communal. There is no such thing as the Lone Ranger in the church of God. That has to do with Western ideas of being a rugged individual. It's got nothing to do with the church. We are brought together in the church. We are gathered as one into the family of God. Uh, that is what it is to become a Christian. You leave behind isolation to become part of the family. And secondly, it's not optional. It's inclusive. Uh, every believer, every born-again person is in the church. You cannot decide to sit outside the church. You really cannot. Some of the most perplexing parts of the, the Bible, some of the most hard-to-preach chapters, let's be honest, are the chapters with the lists of names. 
you know, name after name after name. And you get some of them in, in uh, books of Chronicles, books of Numbers, and so on. Why are they there? Why are all these names in the Bible? The names are there because God is interested in people. God says it's important to know the limits of his people. He's saying membership is important. God has membership roles. If you're a believer, your name is in the book. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And the church is given the task of having people come and declare their commitment to the the Lord Jesus Christ through membership, through a very visible form of commitment. Some people think that's not a very spiritual idea. You know, I don't need communion, role, and all that kind of thing. Well, it's a very spiritual idea. It's a biblical idea. It's a necessary uh, thing to be involved with the church in this way, to show willingness to identify in a clear way, I am part of this gathering of believers. In fact, unless you do that, there are some commandments that you can't obey in the Bible. If you're not a member of any church, then you can't, for example, uh, obey the commandment, uh, obey your leaders. Because you don't have any leaders. You only have a leader uh, if you have formally uh, become a, a communicant member in a congregation. Now, it is our practice in, in Hope Church not to, to push the matter of membership quickly, and that for two reasons, two reasons. First of all, if somebody is is new to Hope Church, then you need to have time to decide whether it's for you, if this is the congregation that you are going to put down roots to which you are going to commit. But also on the other side, the leadership need time to know need to know you and to know if the the confession of faith that you make is a believable confession of faith. And so it's our practice, we invite people to um, come into membership every time we have communion. There's that uh, invitation extended in the lead up to a communion service that you can uh, speak with one of the elders and inquire about membership. You don't need to do that at a communion time. That can be done at any time. Uh, And the reason is that membership gives a visible indication of commitment. And after giving time and thought to that, uh, every Christian uh, should nail their colours to the mast in that way. Thirdly, because of what uh, the New Testament The the Old and the New Testament say about the nature of the church. It's a visible gathering of God's people. So, for those of you who are kind of diagrammatically inclined or or afflicted, here is your guide as to whether on a Sunday you should go to church or not. If you go to church on Sunday, do you have something better to do? Yes. Are you sure about that? Yes. I just want to hear yourself saying, first out loud, I'm going to do something on Sunday and it's more important than worshiping the Lord. Go ahead and say it. And so on. Uh, There are 
very few things that should keep us from the public gathering of the people of God on the Lord's Day at the time when the leaders of the congregation have said we gather for worship. Uh, our confession tells us that these are acts of necessity and mercy. These are the only things that should keep us away from worshipping with God's people. Wild horses should not keep you from church on Sunday. Uh, some of us have to, to care for the sick or the elderly. Uh, some of us, I don't think we've got any power station workers or things like that, but there are things which are necessary and are unavoidable. And also there are times when we need to, to come to people's aid to do things which uh, demonstrate mercy. Works of necessity and mercy. Otherwise, here we are, folks, worshipping the Lord in the assembly of the people of God. The church is the gathering of the people of God. The church is something which is communal, it's not optional, it's inclusive, and it's done visibly. So gathering of the Lord's Day in church is so important. Um, I want to think with you now about the, the great privilege that it is to be a member of this great gathering. And we look at verse 9 where, where Peter is reflecting on some of the Old Testament descriptions of the church. Notice first of all though uh, that verse 9 begins with the word but. It's connecting with something. It's contrasting with something. And the contrast is with those who are not in the church. And Peter says that these people have uh, stumbled over Christ. Christ is, he says, the living stone. He's the living stone who brings life to those who are called by God. But on the other hand, there are people who reject the living stone. And what happens is that they, they stumble over the living stone. Uh, it becomes uh, a sign of their downfall. Now this is not an accidental tripping. It's not something they couldn't help. <coughs> hey, there's this stone lying on the ground in the, the darkness, and I couldn't see it. It is unbelief. Peter's quite clear that the rejection is deliberate, willful disobedience. They reject the living stone, Jesus Christ, and are destined for a, for a fall. But by contrast, believers are in a very different position. Uh, he says, we are a chosen People, a chosen people. That's a beautiful term. You are a chosen people. That's telling us that Christians aren't people who are simply better than the rest. And sadly, that, that's the way that uh, folks outside the church uh, think about you folks. They think that you're in church because you're better than they are, or think. That is a very false idea. A very false idea. We were, by nature, objects of wrath, Paul tells us in Ephesians. We were under the wrath of God. Everyone, all of us, are in church today are sinners. You're either a sinner saved by the grace of God, or you're a sinner continuing under the wrath of God. But you don't become a member of the Church of Christ simply because you are better than the rest. God chose us. God chose us. You are a chosen people. 
And that is an enormous privilege to be a chosen people. And the reason, if it's not because we were good, is because God is love. I love the, the passage in Deuteronomy where God is telling his people why it is that they were chosen. Why this, this tiddly people in an obscure part of the Middle East were chosen as the people of God. It's a wonderful circular logic that God gives. He did not cho- choose Israel because of anything. Uh, the Lord, uh, sorry, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, why did the Lord choose you? Or rather, why did the Lord love you? He loved you because he loved you. There is nothing uh, behind the love of God. There is no reason uh, prompting his love. His love is simply the grounds of his love that results in his choice. He has bestowed his grace for his own good pleasure. We are a chosen people. Secondly, we're a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Again, uh, this has got unashamed Old Testament roots. Uh, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. If, um, if being a chosen people is a mark of favour, then being a, a royal priesthood gives us purpose, gives us wonderful purpose. <laughs> In Israel, uh, priests uh, were taken from the, the priestly tribe of Levi, one of the twelve tribes, but not every Levite was a priest. There were only a few priests taken out of this tribe. And from the, the priests, there, were, there, were, there was a high priest whose privilege was to go into the place where God met with the people. And the high priest had a very colourful ornate uniform uh, and on the breastplate there were 12 beautiful stones which represented the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So he was going in representing them before God. Uh, He was the privileged one who had access before God. Now that privilege has been given to all people. We don't need uh, somebody else to bring us into God's presence. The Roman church lost sight of this when it established an elite of priests who were needed as intermediaries to bring Christians to God. And the reformers in the 16th century recovered the idea that we are all priests. The priesthood of all believers, all of us can come to God because of Jesus. He is the only priest that we need. So the priest had this privilege of access, but the priest also offered sacrifices. He was privileged to be the one who offered sacrifices. Now there's no need for 
uh, anything like that because Christ is our final and sufficient sacrifice. But nevertheless, the New Testament speaks about a different kind of offering of sacrifices that we do as Christians. Romans 12, 1 and 2 speaks about the sacrificing of our whole selves, of our personalities, of our present and our future to God. Uh, we also are told that we are to offer up our money as a sacrifice, Philippians 4.18. New Testament speaks of offering praise to God as a sacrifice. Hebrews uh, 13 and 16 speaks of our good works, our service being a sacrifice to God. So we've got a great purpose within the church. You don't need to be an office bearer. You don't need to be a minister. You don't need to be an elder. You don't need to be a deacon to have significance, to have purpose. You are a priest to God. A royal priesthood. Deep purpose, huge significance. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A holy nation. This is this is a great one. The word nation is ethnos. From that we get the word ethnic, ethnicity. You're a holy ethnicity. Now we use that word uh, ethnic when we describe uh, some of the you know, ethnic groups who have cultures which are different from others. Peter is actually writing to folks who came from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. He says that at the beginning, that he's writing to people who are dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Lots of ethnic backgrounds. They might have thought that they were different from one another, but Peter says, you are one ethnicity. You have become a holy nation. Peter is saying that being a Christian, and as a result being a member of the Church of Christ, brings you into a new ethnic culture. We're different, we've got variety, but what we hold now is a common culture, which is more important than anything else. Think about it in the, the normal workaday terms. We can speak of an ethnic group. Think of, I don't know, uh, Asian ethnicity. So uh, an Asian people group will have a, a way of looking at the world. They will have a certain way of thinking about education, a certain way of thinking about how you bring up a family, a certain view about music and so on. And these are big uh, distinctions, okay? So they're quite different from, say, uh, a, a white Scottish uh, ethnic uh, outlook. And then within these groupings, you get these subcultures. And you get them in all kinds of cultures. People who are into cooking. Or biker subcultures. Little groups. And what they do is they give variety to the, the bigger picture, the bigger group. Peter says, when we come into the church, we come into a common ethnicity. We are a holy nation. We have what what we have in common, rather, sets us apart from other groups. John Stott had a book, uh, a commentary on Ephesians, God's New Society. We are a, a counter 
culture. We are united by biblical teaching on what it means to be human, what justice entails, what it is to be part of the family of God, called into shared life, serving our brothers and sisters self-sacrificially. And yes, there'll be all these subgroups, you know, those who are into hill walking or kukri or whatever, which brings variety to the, the one holy nation ethnicity that we have as Christians. Now, Coming into a holy nation is very different from what people do when they try to do things that simply improve themselves or meet their needs. You know, people quite rightly do this in all kinds of areas, whether it's to go and learn a new language, you know, go to an evening class and learn Spanish, or you go to a self-defense class to protect yourself, um, or you go to the gym uh, to improve your muscle tone and so on. These are all self-improvement things. But being in the church isn't like that. It's not uh, just, as it were, one more uh, file in the filing cabinet. It's a new drawer into which all our files are placed. It's an all-encompassing culture. You are a holy (coughs) ethnicity. You are a holy nation. You have been brought together in a shared people group with a common outlook. Now, with the culture around us, we see huge differences. The culture around us is organised increasingly uh, to keep people apart, to screen people out of your life. And in this new nation, we're called into one family. You're called to be open, even vulnerable, in relationships with other believers. You're called to put into practice at every level what it is to be a Christian in your workplace, in your family, to seek justice, to live with integrity. You are, Peter says, a holy nation. This is your nationhood. This is your ethnicity. You are the people of God. You're a people, finally, belonging to God. This, this notion of belonging to God uh, is often put in terms of being God's treasured possession. And uh, there's a special word for that in the Old Testament. That kind of nice word, sigula. You are God's sigula. And the idea was of the, the personal wealth of a monarch. So a monarch could have lots of wealth which was his by virtue of being the king or the pharaoh, but over and above that there were special gifts that they received and which were their special property. Uh, you are God's sigula. You are God's special possession, his treasure. So you had a fire in the house? <laughs> it's a really scary thought, isn't it? Uh, Everybody is out safe, and you've got a minute to grasp your sigala. <laughs> what is it you would go for? What would be the most treasured possession that you would want to grasp from the house? You know, it would be different things. It might be a, a, a precious album of photographs of the, the kids as they were growing up. You've got no other copy, the only thing. Or a, a gift that somebody gave you, your treasured possession, and you will do whatever it takes to secure that treasured possession. 
there was a a plane crash. It was actually a plane uh, leaving Belfast uh, came down, and a number of people were lost in it. And there was a mother who was travelling with her baby in the plane, and she was in a critical condition. Uh, she was sinking fast in that hospital. Uh, she was leaving and entering consciousness. And as her perception of reality was past being left behind, she had one question which she continually asked. How is my baby? How is my baby? Her life was ebbing away. Her sense of what was going on around her was fading. But there was one thing that she was concerned about. That was the welfare of her child, her sigula, her treasured possession. The lovely scripture that speaks of, of this kind of devotion, can a mother forget the baby at her breast, have no compassion on the child she is born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you, says the Lord. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, God's own precious possession. Cyprian, uh, who was the Bishop of Carthage in the 3rd century, wrote, There is no salvation outside the church. Martin Luther echoed that 1,300 years later. Uh, he wrote, Before he uh, who would find Christ must first find the church. He who would find Christ must first find the church. How should we know where Christ and his faith were if we did not know where his believers are? And he who would know anything of Christ must not trust himself nor build a bridge to heaven by his own reason, but he must go to the church, attend and ask her. Now the church is not wood and stone, but the company of believing people. One must hold to them and see how they believe, live and teach they surely have Christ in their midst, for outside of the Christian church there is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. Jesus loves the church. If we love Jesus, we must love his church. We must be visibly connected with her, find our direction and service in her, because in her we have these great blessings, these high privileges as a people gathered in his presence. We are favoured, we're given purpose, we're transformed, and we are secure. May God bless to us preaching of his holy word. Amen. Let's now sing that psalm that uh, speaks with such joy at coming to assemble before God and that closes with... Uh,